The following sermon is part of a series going through the book of Philippians, and it was preached at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. For more sermons, please visit our sermon audio page. It is our hope and prayer that this content is edifying for you. We read from God's Word this evening in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. The text that we specially consider is verses 11 through 13. 11, 12, and 13 is our text tonight. Let's read the whole chapter. Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudias and beseech Synthache that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that he did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit, that he may abound, that may abound to your account. But I have all, and abound, I am full, 
having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable while pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The text is verses 11, 12, and 13. We'll reread those verses. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, that last verse that we read, that last verse of our text is a beautiful confession of the child of God. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. It's a beautiful text, but it is also one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied texts of God's Word. Many people take this verse, verse 13, and take it out of context to interpret it however they want. For example, out of the mouths of Christian athletes and coaches who face difficult games, strong opponents, comes those words, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, and they mean that we can win, we can play well, because Christ will strengthen us to do so. Faith healers, Pentecostals, charismatics of today speak of believing hard enough in Jesus Christ to be able to do miracles, to be able to heal people. And regarding these supernatural feats, they say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Faced with the afflictions of life, perhaps a diagnosis of cancer, and the seemingly insurmountable odds of survival, Christian patients may say these words, thinking that they will beat cancer for sure because I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Office bearers in the church, a minister in the church, elders and deacons in the church who might want a successful ministry, a successful term in office to bring a church to healing and to get rid of strife and bring peace finally, might say, I will be successful because I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
And there are plenty of many other examples of taking this text and really misunderstanding and misapplying. Because it is simply not true, beloved. It is not true that I can and you can accomplish anything and everything that I want through Christ who strengthens me. In fact, as we meditate on this Word of God tonight, in its context, we will see and realize that the Word of God actually means something contrary to how it is interpreted or misinterpreted. It is not about getting done what we want done that this text is talking about, but rather it is about being able to find contentment when things don't go the way we want. I can do, or I am able to deal with the circumstances that I might not want or like. That's the point of Paul. Through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Simply put, when verse 13 says all things, I can do all things, it is not speaking of all things that we want materially, with respect to our health, or wealth, or earthly circumstances. But rather, all things means all difficult circumstances, all things that we face in this life, hardships and successes. And Paul makes that clear in the context, verse 12. Whether he is abased or he abounds, whether he is full or hungry, whether he suffers need or has plenty. In all these things, Paul says, I am able, he means, to have contentment. That's Paul's point. In chapter 4, Paul is in the context or in the midst of thanking and commending the Philippians for a financial gift that they have sent to him. As we have already reiterated in our series of sermons in the book of Philippians, the Philippian church had sent to Paul a gift while he was under house arrest in Rome. They had sent Epaphroditus, who had brought to him some money, and Paul now, in the context, expresses his joy and thanks. Verse 9, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at the last your care of me hath flourished. Again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. We'll come back to this verse next time, but Paul here is commending the Philippians for their financial support of him. It seems that they had in the past supported him regularly, and there had been a lapse in their financial support for some time. But now again, while he was in Rome, they had again sent money. And Paul now thanks the Philippians for resuming their support of him financially. But in giving thanks for their financial gifts, Paul does not want the Philippian church to get the idea or the message that he had been discontent when he did not receive their financial help. He wants, them, he wants to express to them his contentment even before they sent him a gift and sent him Epaphroditus for his encouragement. 
He wants to be an example, you see, of contentment to the Philippian church who had struggles with this contentment. So from prison in Rome, he writes, not, though I'm thankful for the gift, it's not that I speak in respect of one. For I have learned that in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content through Christ who strengthens me. Consider this text with me under the theme, learning contentment. First, the contentment. Second, the learning. And then finally, the strengthening. Using the words and the concepts in this very text, we see that contentment defined is a God-given satisfaction of heart. A God-given satisfaction of heart in the midst of every circumstance or situation. A God-given satisfaction of heart in the midst of every circumstance and situation. The heart of someone who is content says this sincerely, I am satisfied. I have enough. No matter what. I lack nothing. And that's what Paul says right at the very beginning of our text. Not that I speak in respect of want. And that word want means lack. I, I don't speak as though I have any lack. I don't have any deficiency. All my needs have been met. I am full. As he says later on in verse 18, I have all and abound. I am full. That's the expression of contentment. The word content in verse 11 can be translated satisfied or sufficient within oneself. That's the literal meaning of the word. There's a word self in the word content and satisfied. I'm uh, this, there's a sufficiency inside myself. Contentment is that heart satisfaction within the soul. Or as the hymn writer put it, it is well. It is well with my soul. Paul is a beautiful example of this contentment. He had been under house arrest, and remember that he had been under house arrest for about two years now. Having been rejected by his own countrymen, he had been shipped to Rome. After being shipwrecked, he had finally gotten to Rome. And there he had been allowed to live in his own rented house. But he was chained to a guard. He didn't have freedom. He had to wait for two years. And during this house arrest, it wasn't that the Roman government paid for his accommodations, but he had to pay his own rent. Hence, the need for money. Money which the Philippians sent probably to help cover that rent. He had been rejected of his own people, and now he was facing the possibility of execution. And facing the possibility of execution, he had heard of the Philippian troubles, and not just the Philippian church troubles. As a missionary, with a great care for all the churches that he had planted, 
He heard about troubles in Thessalonica. He had troubled, heard troubles in Corinth and in other places. Paul was very conscious of all of his physical needs and lacks. He knew there were problems all around him and troubles in the church. And yet, he says, I am content. I don't speak as though I have lack. I am full. There is sufficiency within myself. Paul speaks with that contentment. And we understand contentment better if we understand the opposite of that contentment. The opposite of contentment is covetousness. Hebrews 13 verse 5 is a passage that explains contentment by bringing up the opposite. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Covetousness is that selfish desire which we all have by nature. According to our old man, that selfish desire which makes ourselves the God and seeks to please ourselves, whether it be with lawful things of this earth or with sinful pleasures. Covetousness always wants more. Covetousness always wants better, newer, what is trending in our day and age. Covetousness is never satisfied with what, how much money he has. Covetousness is never satisfied with her looks. Covetousness always wants newer, better. It's the opposite of contentment. Covetousness is that of the heart and it manifests itself, children, in, in murmuring. I recently gave that chapel speech at Hope School, remember children? The Israelites with covetous hearts complained. They wanted the leeks, the onions, the garlic in Egypt. And they murmured about the manna that God had given them. The very picture of Jesus Christ. They exaggerated their difficulties in their present circumstances and out of their mouths spewed forth murmuring which God saw as gross. Murmuring is gross in the sight of God. And so God then gave them, you remember, a consequence which actually pictured what murmuring was like. He gave them all the quail they wanted so that it came out of their nostrils when they vomited it back up, which was a consequence that fit murmuring, for it showed the grossness of the Israelites and our murmuring. Covetousness is that unthankfulness, that ingratitude that expresses, it for, expresses itself with spewing forth the bitter grumbling and murmuring of the heart. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without this murmuring and, and disputing. That's the opposite of contentment. Heart satisfaction with God. One qualification, contentment is not 
the loss of a proper ambition. That is, contentment is not a lack of energy and ambition to improve, especially spiritually. Some people think of contentment as an inner peace that results in a passivity. I'm content with where I am in life, they say, so I'm not going to work too hard on my job, I'm not going to work too hard to improve on my skills, and especially to press on in the life of sanctification. No, that's not contentment. That's laziness. Paul, with his contentment, still labored diligently. He was active. He had great ambition, not for himself, but he had great ambition for the service of God, for the spread of the gospel. He had great ambition to press on, remember, we considered Philippians 3.13 and 14, reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He pressed onward in a life that pursued sanctification and godliness. Contentment doesn't result in a passivity or a lack of proper ambition. But it does kill a selfish ambition. For the contented heart feels full, feels satisfied, and is not grasping for more to serve me. Contented heart, rather, is full. As the psalmist says, my cup runneth over. And being full, there's a gratitude that shows forth in contentment. There were flows in service, not of self now, but because I'm already full, but now in service of God and my neighbor. A truly content person abounds unto every good work, as 2 Corinthians 9 puts it beautifully. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that He always having all sufficiency, meaning all contentment, in all things may abound unto every good work. Which brings us to an important point emphasized in this text regarding contentment. Contentment is not determined by your outward circumstances. Paul says, in whatsoever state I am in, I am content. I've learned to be content in every situation, no matter what it is in life. And he goes into detail in verse 12 to describe the different circumstances of his life in which he had learned to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Beloved, one of the greatest fallacies, one of the greatest lies of the human mind and the human nature is the idea, the thought, the feeling that if I can just change my external circumstances a little bit, then I'll be content. And Paul says, no, contentment comes in whatsoever circumstance I'm in. Doesn't matter the external circumstances. It's a simple point, but we fall into this fallacy again and again. We think, if I, if I can just get a little more money, 
a little more income. If I can just rid myself of these church hardships and troubles. If, if I can just make my marriage a little better, cause my husband to love me a little bit more, if I can get my children to behave slightly better, if I can be a little more successful in my ministry, if I can change something about my outward circumstances, then, then I'll be content. And the world tempts us into that. You go online and you maybe peruse Amazon.com or you go to the Facebook marketplace to find something used and you see all the things, or you go to the store, all the things that the world offers, and they say to you through their advertisements, through their flashy things of life, if you just have these things, one more thing, another device, another piece of entertainment, another drink, a different kind of food, then you'll be content. And you feel that draw of your sinful nature. If I can just change my outward circumstance a little bit, then, then I would be content. If I wasn't as inconvenienced, if my schedule could just be not as messed up as it is, if my car didn't need so many repairs, then I'll be content. If dinner would just turn out the way I planned, if, if the virus restrictions would, would just go away. And those are all lies that we tend to believe. Contentment, beloved, does not come in the changing of our circumstances. People with the easiest of lives. And really, compared to the rest of the world, we have relatively easy lives. But people with the easiest of lives, easier than we have, perhaps today, are just as discontent as those with lives full of afflictions and trials. In fact, you can find believing people who face greater hardships than you and I face, who are more content than we are. I remember going to the Philippines about four years ago, and you saw pictures last week of a typhoon that went through the city of Manila or flooded a river and destroyed buildings and those books of the RFPA. I remember going to the Philippines four years ago and going to a place called Gabaldon, a poor village, already poor to start with, at the base of a mountain. And the same kind of storm, a typhoon, had, had gone through that village and destroyed all of its crops. Not only the crops, but it destroyed the very land so that the land had become useless for future growing of crops. This typhoon had flooded homes, and I remember driving up with Reverend Vernon Ebay to one of the homes of a believer there in this little poor village. I can still remember a man with his wife coming out of the house with his face beaming, smiling, and then showing hospitality to rich Ameri a rich American like myself. 
feeding me of his own possessions as an expression of gratitude for my presence to prove, beloved, how contentment is not due to our outward circumstances. But there are people who have far less than we do who are more content, who are more content than we are. In verse 12, Paul gives four pairs of circumstances in which he had learned to be content. And it's striking how he begins. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. In the present context, when Paul talks about money and finances and earthly belongings, which is one of his points, we would expect Paul to begin with contentment when he didn't have as many material things. But notice how Paul begins. When he speaks of abased here, he is not speaking of material loss. But rather, the word abased refers to reputation. That's another earthly thing which we like, which we want to hold on to. Another earthly thing that we think determines our contentment, which doesn't. Paul says, I have learned how to be abased, that is. I've learned how to be humiliated. I've learned how to be shamed. I've learned how to get the mockery and false accusations of men pointed at me and still be content. That's amazing. And that abound refers to having a good name, to have much, many accolades, to get much praise. And Paul's saying, therefore, whether my name is dragged through the mud, destroyed by envious preachers who hate me, or whether my name is honored as a faithful apostle of Jesus Christ in the church and in the world, no matter what, I have learned to be content. Beloved, that's a necessary application today. Are you content? Even if your name, your personal name or your church name is dragged through the mud and false accusations come your way, you need to learn. And I need to learn therewith to be content. Everywhere and in all things, Paul gives his second pair. And here Paul wants to be comprehensive. Everywhere refers to each particular circumstance. It's in the singular, notice. In every specific, unique situation, whether negative or positive, Paul is saying, I have learned to be content. That is, whether in prison or whether free, whether I'm standing before a favorable judge or an unjust judge, whether I'm preaching to people who are receptive or people who are angry or sleeping, I've learned to be content in each specific situation. And in that same pair, he says, in all things, everywhere and in all things. And now Paul shifts slightly to the plural. And he's saying not only in every specific situation, but in all situations put together. I have learned to be content. 
And the last two pairs, he gets to the specific, which the specifics which relate most directly to the context. Whether I'm full, literally, my stomach is full, or whether my stomach is empty, I'm starving or fasting, I've learned to be content. Young men, can you say that? Whether I'm full or I'm hungry, I've learned to be content. And not only that, referring again to material possessions, both to abound and to suffer need, meaning in today's terms, if my wallet and pockets were full or empty, I've learned to be content. This was Paul's expression of contentment as a Christian. He says, I have learned this. I have learned it. What a precious word. I've learned it. Paul doesn't say, I had it. I've always had it. He's not saying here, at my conversion, as soon as Jesus Christ turned my heart, I immediately gained contentment and never struggled with discontentment, never struggled with covetousness again. No, Paul is saying, I had to learn it. In the passive even, he says in verse 12, I am instructed, meaning God had to teach me this contentment. And that's the only reason I learned it. Paul is confessing that of himself, he did not naturally know contentment. In fact, if you are a thinking Christian right now, listening to the sermon, you will hear in the exhortation to contentment implied in this text, the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is, thou shalt not covet. That's the negative. And the positive is, be content. Have no inclination whatsoever unto sin or unto selfish pursuit of your pleasure, but be content in all things. And the 10th commandment especially, remember, beloved, the 10th commandment especially is meant to expose to us our sins, that we are so far from perfect righteousness, but we're inclined to all evil. And this text too then, just as the 10th commandment and the law exposes to us our great sinfulness, be content, and we know we have failed in that contentment. But there is hope. The hope that Jesus covers us, but also this hope, and the main point of our text, that those whom Jesus covers, He teaches so that we learn contentment. We who fail at being content, we who who commit that fallacy again and again in our life and believe the lie that if we change our outward circumstances, we will be content, and then we find out it's not true. He'll teach us. Just as he taught Paul. God taught, and Paul learned contentment. And that teaching 
And that learning, of course, did not take place with Paul sitting in a classroom. Didn't take place with Paul sitting at Gamaliel's feet. This instruction took place through the very experiences of Paul's life. In his providence, think about this, imagine this, children. God in his providence took Paul through blindness at his conversion. Took away his sight and then gave him his sight. He had the Jews reject him and the Gentiles listen to him. He was captured and freed and captured and freed again. He was whipped. And through all these circumstances, think about Paul. He's not a perfect man. He's a weak man like you and me. Do you think Paul was unfazed through all these circumstances? No. You think he never murmured? No. You think he never was discontent? Oh, he was. He was a sinner. And God took Paul the sinner from his pouting position, from his murmuring, from his coveting. And Paul and God chastised Paul, his son. And God brought Paul to repentance, and then Paul learned contentment. He learned to say even this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. It's when I am weak, then, then am I strong. And so, beloved, you hear an implied call tonight to contentment. And I do call you to that contentment. But this is the main point. That Jesus Christ, by His sanctifying Spirit, will work in you to bring you to contentment. And through the hard experiences of life that you face right now, that's what He's doing. He is teaching you and me the very contentment that He intends for us to learn. It's part of His sanctifying work in you. And to teach us this contentment, let us consider some secrets to contentment. God teaches His people contentment not only by taking us through experiences in life, but by telling us secrets with His Word as He takes us through those experiences in life. And I get that idea from verse 12. It doesn't come out in the English, but there is a unique word in verse 12. Look at the words, I am instructed. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. When you hear those words, I'm instructed, you might think of a classroom, a teacher instructing you publicly, and you sitting there in your desks and listening to the teacher instructing you, but that's not the idea of the word. Rather, the picture is this. Push aside the picture of the classroom instruction, and now think 
of something far more personal. The instruction comes in this way. As a husband would come to his wife beside her with his arm around her perhaps to comfort her and to whisper the secrets of God's word that she needs to hear for her encouragement and her contentment. The literal meaning is to tell a secret. Paul is saying, I have been taught the secret both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And that idea of God, like a husband, telling his bride the secret is the idea of the covenant. God, in his loving relationship with us, so loves us that he comes alongside us and by his spirit, he whispers secrets to us. He doesn't share, he doesn't share it with everyone in this whole world. This world is full of discontent. But he comes to us as people and he shares his secrets with us. Psalm 25, verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. Three secrets. There are more, but three especially, all having to do with Jesus Christ. Three secrets of contentment. First, Christ's finished work is for your satisfaction. Here's where this evening's sermon is very much connected to this morning's sermon. Jesus Christ's finished work is for your satisfaction. It is first of all, we said this morning, that He satisfies God's justice. That first and foremost. The work of salvation is that Jesus Christ has come and He has brought forth perfect love and at the same time He has suffered the infinite, the infinite wrath of God and punishment for us when He lived in His life and went to the cross. It is done. It is finished. He satisfied God's justice. The, the, the scales have been balanced. But now, this gospel is also for your satisfaction. The child of God must know this. The child of God must believe this. The child of God must cling to this and cherish this as the greatest thing ever in his whole life. He must delight in this. This is the secret of contentment that he has his eyes and his heart focused upon the perfect satisfaction of Jesus Christ for him. The more you cherish this perfect work of Jesus Christ, the more you will sense the contentment, the satisfaction of heart. The more you turn your eyes away from this full satisfaction of Jesus Christ to look elsewhere for satisfaction of heart, 
the more you will wander in covetousness and all kinds of sin which cannot satisfy you. The secret of contentment, the secret of contentment above all, is that you find your contentment in Christ's finished work. Second, the secret of contentment is this, that Christ sovereignly works for your future satisfaction. He works all things for your future satisfaction. Having finished a work of satisfying God's justice, Jesus Christ didn't remain dead. He rose again from the dead and He sits at God's right hand and He governs all things sovereignly. All things, including death itself, to bring you, to bring you unto full satisfaction in heaven. That's why we sing, don't we? When I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see, when all the weary night is past, and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then I shall be satisfied. And that's what Christ is doing right now. Through every detail, through every hardship and affliction of life, He is bringing us, shaping us and molding us for that eternal glory when there we will have full satisfaction. Do you know that secret? The secret which gives us contentment now. And third, the secret of contentment is that Christ Himself, Christ Himself is satisfied. It's not only what He has done for us. It's not only what He will do for us. Christ Himself, His person, is joined to us. He has a relationship with us. He has made Himself one with us. We are in Him, and He in us. I'll come back to verse 13, but for now, notice the word through Christ. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me, and that word through Christ, or that, that phrase means, I'm in Christ. I'm united to Him. I'm joined to Him. And you are too. By faith, you have His person joined to you and His Spirit, His very Spirit in you, filling you. Cling to Him. His person is yours. You belong to Him. And He should be everything to you. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Be content with such things as ye have, comes the exhortation. Be content. Why? Listen to the reason. Why be content? For he hath said, that is Christ hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In other words, here's a secret of contentment. It's very simple. 
You have me. I am yours and you are mine. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. Beloved, if you have Christ, if you have Christ Jesus Himself joined to you, you have everything. You can say with Paul then, I don't speak with respect of want. I lack nothing. And in whatsoever state I am, I can be content. Because as Psalm 63 says, Thy loving kindness is better than life itself. Therefore my lips shall praise Thee. Have you learned? Do you hear the secrets of contentment? Christ strengthens you as you hear His secrets of contentment. And then we can, and we are able to do contentment. I say it that way, we are able to do contentment. Because that's what Paul is referring to in verse 13 when he says, I can do all things. I can do contentment, he means. In all things, through Christ who strengthens me. Sometimes we say, I can't. I can't. I can't do it anymore. I feel like giving up. I just want to run away from these circumstances. I can't. You felt it recently. I have. And Paul says no. Don't say that. I can. That's a confession of the contented child of God. I can. I can learn contentment through whatever circumstance. I can say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How how can I? And the simple answer is through Christ. Through Christ, by the power of Christ in me. Christ doesn't just teach me His secrets as He does this evening, but He, with those secrets, puts into me, infuses into me His strength, His power. Verse 13, I said, through Christ means in Christ. It refers to the union to Christ. And I bring back to your mind the theological concept that I've explained again and again to you. It's worthy of repetition. You are like a branch connected to the vine. You are like a baby connected by umbilical cord to a mother. You are like 
a hose linked to the faucet. And from Christ, there flows into you because you're united to Him. His strength to be content. The despairing, despondent child of God says, sometimes I can't. And I respond, can Christ? Can Christ? If Christ were in, if Christ were in your specific situation, in your specific troubles, if Christ were in your shoes, could He be content? Then the obvious answer is yes. Of course He can. More than that, He He was content. 2,000 years ago, He came to this earth and He lived a life of perfect contentment in circumstances more difficult than we bear today. He was touched with the feelings of all our infirmities. The Son of God had no place to lay His head. And He knew. He knew how to be abased and He knew how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, He knew how to be full and to be hungry. To abound with much and to suffer need. In every circumstance, He could be perfectly content. And that for us, in our place, as our substitute, to impute His perfect contentment to our account but more. This Jesus Christ is in us. If He is in us, then I may not say, I can't. Period. Oh yes, we must always say, I can't of myself. But I can learn contentment through Christ who strengtheneth me. So beloved, I call you to learn that contentment in whatsoever state you are in and will be in. I call you not only to learn it, but to be an example to others of it. That's what Paul is being here. An example to the Philippians of contentment. Parents, before your children, when you go through the little inconveniences of life, learn to show contentment. When you go through the big troubles of church life, learn to put aside the murmuring and show contentment. That must be your example. You can learn to be that example of contentment. It doesn't come with the changing of your outward circumstances, but it's by the changing of your heart in Jesus Christ. As you consider His secrets, but with that call, remember the promise, which doesn't weaken the call. I am with you, the Lord God, Jesus Christ says, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm joined to you and you to me. I'm the Christ who strengthens you unto this contentment. In fact, the very reason He sovereignly brings us through those times when we lose what we once clung to so dearly. Is his way of prying the fingers of our hearts from that which we cling to too dearly so that we might delight in Jesus Christ more and see that in Him we truly have everything. Amen. Father, forgive us. Forgive us of discontentment. For thy word this evening includes the law. And it exposes unto us once again our covetous, idolaters, unbelieving hearts. Forgive us through Jesus Christ, who was our representative, and who lived a life of perfect contentment for us. And strengthen us by His Spirit, for He is in us, so that we learn in whatsoever state we are in to be content. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hope prchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.